Welcome to GEMCAST, the Geriatric Emergency Medicine Podcast, where we discuss important topics in the care of older patients in the emergency department. I'm your host, Christina Shenby. GEMCAST is produced with the Geriatric ED Collaborative. You can find more episodes on any podcasting app, and you can find the show notes on the resources page of gedcollaborative.com. Welcome back to GEMCAST. Today we have a slightly different topic than usual. Instead of our usual talking about clinical items, today we're going to talk about how do we educate people effectively in geriatric emergency medicine. And to do that, I have two fantastic guests with us. Brittany Ellis, she is an assistant professor at the University of Saskatchewan, and she is Jerry EM fellowship trained. She's an emergency physician, a transport physician, and a provincial lead for geriatric EM. Our second guest is Alice Gray. Alice is a lecturer at the University of Toronto and co-lead of the simulation program at the University Health Network ER, and she's curriculum lead for geriatric EM. And get this, she did a six-month Jerry EM fellowship and a six-month simulation fellowship. So today we're going to marry those two topics, and Brittany and Alice are going to tell us what they've done and what you can potentially do to enhance geriatric education at your site. So a little bit of background. A lot of our learning in med school starts out with books or in these days, videos. And then once we're in the clinical realm, we learn through practice and through apprenticeship with our attendings or senior residents. But there are many other ways to learn things that we can't safely practice on humans or that we can't really learn from books. So things like procedures, that's a great example of things that we learn well through simulation practice or skills like teamwork and communication. It's hard to learn teamwork from reading a book. Really, you have to get in there and practice it. And broadly speaking, we could call this experiential learning. So to kick us off, Alice, can you explain to our audience what is experiential learning and some of its different modalities? Yes, of course, I would be happy to. And thank you so much, Christina, for allowing us on your podcast. We're really happy to be here. So experiential learning is a training methodology that allows participants to be simulated into real world scenarios. So a common example that you might know about is virtual reality. Experiential learning in general allows participants to be put into the physical and or mental states of someone different from themselves. And the hope is that they can understand and appreciate how others' experiences may differ from their own. And in our case, what challenges may exist to elderly patients in the ED? It helps to elicit conceptual understandings and ways of thinking that are generally challenging to learn effectively in typical online or classroom settings. I love how you frame that, that it allows us to put ourselves in situations or experience challenges that we might not normally experience. So specifically for the geriatric patients, and geriatric learning, what do you use for your experiential learning? Yeah, so instead of virtual reality, we used elder suits, which will be described later on in detail. But these suits mimic some of the physical and sensory limitations of older adults. Participants performed activities while wearing these suits. They shared in the results and observations with each other. And then this led to a debrief and reflection on their experiences while wearing the suits. We found that experiential learning could be used for training, 
and quality improvement purposes in a safe, effective, and really engaging environment. And we thought that people might want to learn about it to try at their own institutions. Wow, very cool. So I can't wait to hear more and maybe see pictures of these elder suits to find out exactly what is involved with them. But to sort of back up a little bit, why do we need geriatric education specifically in this area? Why is this even important? So I think I'm gonna uh, pitch in for this one. The short answer is that we need geriatric education because older people are a core group. And traditionally, as highlighted, there's very little education targeted towards their needs. In Canada, for example, and recently, and for the first time ever in history, older people outnumber children. And in most North American emergency departments, they represent 20 to 30% of visits. They continue to have a disproportionately high use of REDs because they're more complex and their visits are also associated with higher costs. So in response to these changes, there has been a surge in the number of emergency physicians with special interest in training in geriatric EM, such as Alice, myself, and you, Christina. And while this has led to an increase in research guidelines and leadership, it seems that geriatric-focused learning and skills are still not consistently covered in most training programs. And sadly, I think that Canada is perhaps even a bit further behind than the U.S. in this regard. It's really interesting, Brittany. You know, in the U.S., EM residents will typically rotate through a pediatric ED at most sites, but geriatrics constitutes, as you said, 20% of our adult patient population, and yet it certainly doesn't make up 20% of the education, and certainly 20% of our graduating residents are not doing geriatric EM fellowships nationally. And in terms of the education, it may be because we're just not labeling things specifically as geriatrics. I mean, if you give a talk about AFib, well, who gets AFib? Older patients. If you give a talk about uh, ACS, who gets ACS? Well, primarily older patients, but also, you know, individuals in their 40s and 50s. So part of that may be people just don't realize, okay, this is geriatric education, but certainly we could do a better job of having specific education around geriatric concepts. So what is it like in Canada? Are residents getting geriatric specific training? I think I'm, I'm going to take a step back really quickly there, if it's okay, because you said some really awesome things about older people get AFib and older people get ACS, and certainly they do. But older people have also traditionally been left out of a lot of the trials and research that focuses on these core disease entities or processes in this group. And so while we talk about learning about these concepts, we're not necessarily specifically learning it to the older people, and we're not specifically learning it in complex older people who may be on 10, 12, 15 different medications and how that might involve or affect their care. So to answer your question, in Canada, things are a little bit behind. There was one recent study, for example, that assessed emergency trainees' self-reported comfort in geriatric EM domains. These are essential things such as atypical presentations, trauma, falls, delirium, pain management, things that we do see every day in the emergency department in the care of older people. And only 34% of residents in their final year of training, after five years of training, were comfortable in all eight of these domains. So geriatric education, geriatric departmental design and function lag behind actual departmental utilization. What we're doing legs behind how our departments are being used. And so clearly there's not only an opportunity here, but the way Alice and I see it, a great need to improve how we teach about 
think about and care for older people in our EDs? Well, you know, if any of them need some educational resources, I know a fantastic geriatric podcast that's available. (laughs) So talk us through the role of experiential learning and simulation in geriatrics. How do you think about this? Yeah, so I mean, traditionally, simulation education, especially in the emergency department, involves teaching around acute presentations, so things such as sepsis and trauma and airway emergencies. And while these obviously have a very important role in emergency education, the less acute, but in many ways more complex patients and presentations have generally been underrepresented in simulation. And I would argue that most older adults who present to the ER likely represent some of the most complex patients that we see on every shift. Elderly patients have physical, sensory, and cognitive changes that affect how they experience and navigate the healthcare system. And the ER is an especially challenging environment. Patients are at their most vulnerable. There is noise, movement, light, other environmental factors that can be very overwhelming And to be blunt, the vast majority of EDs were not built, nor had models of care that were developed with the older patient in mind. So we hope that by highlighting some of these differences through experiential learning, we can make improvements to ensure that we can effectively care for older adults in the ED. And as Dr. Don Malady, who is a mentor to Britt and I and many others, he often says that good geriatric care is actually good care for everyone in the ED which is very true. Absolutely. Good care for geriatric care is just good care. It involves teamwork. It involves looking at their home medication. It involves getting collateral information. It's, it's what we should ideally be doing for everyone. And, and you mentioned that, you know, patients who come in with these nonspecific or complex situations or diagnoses uh, are what we see all the time. This is so true. So I took a page out of John Schumacher and Don Milady were on the podcast a few months ago talking about their book on creating a geriatric ED. And one of them had told a story about how someone got up for a talk and had the audience say, okay, if you put in a chest tube last week, stand up. And a couple people stood up. If you did a massive transfusion, stand up. A couple more stood up. And sure enough, so I did this when I was at the Society for EMPAs talking about uh, geriatric abdominal pain. And I had a a few people would stand up. And then I said, all right, who had an older adult with abdominal pain? And the entire room stood up. And it's just such a remarkable demonstration of the fact that these are the patients that we're seeing every single day. So we need to educate our workforce about them. So what are the goals for your educational sessions when you are using these simulation suits? I think the main goal of our session is really to help healthcare providers empathize with older adults, to help us understand how we can modify our own practices, our own behaviors to provide the best possible care, as you guys have highlighted. And whenever I think of this, I think of stories, because we all have stories about how users, how family members, how loved ones use the emergency department. And I had a a recent experience with my grandma that I'll I'll briefly share, because I think it highlights some of the ways we can use these suits to demonstrate some of the challenges older people face. So recently, my own grandma, who has some moderate cognitive impairment, had a fall at home, and she was in new rapid AFib. So she was taken to the ED. And when I went to go visit her, she was in bed and needed to use the bathroom. Of course, I assisted her. The first thing we noticed that was that her bed was too high and I attempted to lower it, 
But even at its lowest point, my petite grandma couldn't touch the ground from the bed. So this required somebody who was feeling unwell to almost hop down off the bed, my 81-year-old grandma. She was lucky enough to have an adjacent bathroom, but there were no grab rails along the way. And the toilet seat was not raised, meaning I had to help her on and off the toilet despite her modesty. Her gown wasn't on properly because she couldn't reach around the back to grab the strings and to tie it at the side. And I just couldn't believe how all these seemingly small tasks created a pretty big challenge in just going to the bathroom in our emergency department. So hopefully swimsuits will allow people to learn and empathize with these types of experiences and challenges without actually having to endure them themselves. I think another goal of the session is to understand how we can improve or modify our spaces or processes in the ER. For example, we all, I think even more recently than normal, have had very busy emergency rooms where we're seeing patients out of the waiting room. We might pull them into a temporary assessment space before having them go back to the waiting room. And if your patient is 18 years old and has abdominal pain, this can be pretty quick and simple for the most part. But if your patient's 81 years old with mobility impairment, sensory impairment, and abdominal pain, it doesn't only take us more time as providers to get them up from the waiting room into their assessment space and back, but it can also lead to incomplete or rushed assessments. Perhaps the assessment space is not ideal for an older person to lay down or to get undressed, so we rush things. Therefore, having this patient prioritized for a bed is not only a good practice, but it's something that can be easily demonstrated in using these types of teaching modalities. The sessions, when done in an interprofessional manner, can also help team members to better understand the roles and skills of the various ED providers. And I say this, and I come by this honestly, because I can't even explain to you how many times I've sat down with occupational therapists and physiotherapists and pharmacists to really get a good understanding of what they do, and they can offer so much to these populations. These teaching sessions also allow impromptu education. So we talk about some of the challenges. We talk about what normal aging is. We talk about what frailty is and how it may impact care and how it may impact older people using our services. And just one final point and something I like to throw in there that I know Dr. Malady would also be proud of would be take a minute before you do these types of sessions and consider inviting hospital leaders or administrators and people who you don't traditionally involve in education because I think everybody can relate to challenges we're talking about but sometimes actually seeing it experiencing it for yourself firsthand is what we really need to inspire change and I know some people have been very successful in doing this and allowing this to continue and the education and change to be created this way. Yes, I love that idea that this is not just transmission of information that, oh, the beds should be lower or the toilet seats higher, but it's a conversion of belief. It's a conversion of understanding. It's a paradigm shift of, oh, now I've experienced that in this suit or with these restrictions, I can't get off the bed or I can't move to walk down the hall. So it's a way to very tangibly and physically walk a mile or a hallway in someone else's shoes. So now, how do the suits actually work? What do they involve? What limitations do they simulate? Yeah, so the, the suits are designed to allow users to experience a range of physical, sensory, and cognitive impairments that may impact older patients. 
Um, we can describe the suits in detail, but again, a picture is worth a thousand words and we'll have some images on the website that you can refer to. The various components can be utilized alone or in combination to create a unique experience, depending on what the goals of your session actually are. For the physical impairments, some of the components include neck, elbow, and knee braces that can mimic arthritis or decreased range of motion. There are shoulder straps that create kyphosis or an increased curvature of your spine, which can really impact your mobility and, the, and your center of gravity, which may contribute to falling. There are weights you can place on extremities that mimic some muscle weakness that increases fatigue. And we also get participants to use canes or walkers that may interfere with their normal ability to walk. For the sensory changes, we have goggles. We place Vaseline on the goggles to mimic macular degeneration or cataracts, um, or even patients who have glasses, but they were forgotten at home. How often does that happen? Very commonly. There are earplugs, there are earmuffs that mimic hearing loss, or again, hearing aids that did not come to the emergency department with the patient. There are gloves that mimic diminished sensation or decreased fine motor movements that may occur with neuropathy or arthritis. So you have the participant put all these things on, the braces, the gloves, the ear goggles, the earplugs, earmuffs, and then what do you have them do? Yeah, so once they're all fully donned up in these suits, we get them to perform very basic tasks. So just as Britt was mentioning with her grandmother, we get them to put on a hospital gown. Can you actually put this on when you're very kyphotic? Can you actually go to the bathroom? Can you walk there? Can you pretend, so we don't actually get people to give us a urine sample, but pretend to give us a urine sample, when you have decreased range of motion in your joints, when your cane is at home? Can you take the correct medication at the correct time from a blister pack? Can you get the pills out of a pill bottle when you can't see or you don't have the dexterity in your hands? We get patients to participants as patients to complete and understand forms and even to complete an MMSE or MOCA in a very noisy environment with impaired hearing and vision. For the cognitive changes, you know, we recognize that it's impossible to recreate or mimic the experiences of patients with cognitive impairment or delirium, but we did attempt to allow participants to experience what it must be like to not be able to communicate with people around you, to not be able to be heard. And as you can imagine, it's not only very frustrating, but probably very scary. And so for the cognitive changes, we would read a list of instructions to the participants in incoherent language and see if they could understand, follow instructions, um, or just experience what it's like to not be able to communicate with those around you. Sometimes we actually had learners compete um, and see who could complete the tasks the fastest, so who could go to the bathroom the fastest and put on their gown, and this created a really fun competitive environment that was really engaging and memorable to participants. A little competition always helps. Well, I love this model of really having participants experience. And these are the kind of things that stick with you for a lifetime. I mean, I could give a lecture on geriatric joint pain or joint changes or balance changes or falls. And sadly, it'll probably be forgotten. If not in a week, at least in a year. But that experience of having to put on a gown and those gowns are tough on the best of days. Sometimes patients ask for help and like, there's just snaps in very random places and ties. And 
I have trouble <laughs> and this is my job and I do it all the time. I have trouble with them. Of course, somebody putting it on um, has will have difficulty. And then when they try to get up or walk, they're at risk of the, the gown coming off. So this is such a cool individual and personal experience. But the other thing that I think you alluded to is this can help you understand and problem solve at the systems level. And I am a firm believer that every problem has a systems-based solution. So there is a systems-based way to identify the challenges that your patients may be facing and also some of the solutions. So how can we use this at other institutions for those kind of systems problem solving? I think uh, there's a number of ways that we can use these suits. And I think as I alluded to before, not only does everybody love a good competition, I think everybody also loves a good team. And kind of engaging the entire team that's involved in the care of older people in our emergency departments is one really important way that these suits can be utilized. So we can do these types of engagements in simulation. So actually in a simulation lab, a slightly artificial environment, or we can actually use them in situ or within the department. We find that when we do these sorts of things and we invite our interprofessional colleagues, that we can utilize their skill set, their training, and their experiences a lot better. Everybody is able to come and provide a really unique lens and provide insight into how older people are using our EDs. Because so often, as you can imagine, we, you know, we as physicians may go into a room and see a patient and assess a patient, and then we leave and, and we go on to the next patient. And we often there's so many tasks and things that happen between our visits and between our assessments that we don't actually experience or maybe even know about on a routine basis. So bringing our whole team together and engaging in these sorts of experiences is one opportunity or one way we can really share and learn from one another. Again, this could be used formally for induction to the emergency departments to explore how the emergency departments are functioning. It can be part of ongoing medical education. It can be part of leadership exercises. And also, I think Alice is going to highlight how these sorts of simulation suits can be used to identify some latent safety threats in our environments, in spaces that we've already working in. Yeah, so recently we opened a new section of our emergency department, our new rapid assessment zone, and we wanted to test drive how an elderly patient may use the space differently or how the space needed to adapt to the needs of older adults. So we actually used our Jerry suits and we were able to identify some latent safety threats that may not have been identified until after the space opened and something bad happened. So as an example, a ramp in the emergency department appeared very gentle, but was actually very steep when patients using a walker had to go down it. There was another bar at the side of the hallway, which was identified as a tripping hazard. And then some of the patient assessment pods uh, transmitted sounds from all over the department, and they were really not suited for patients with hearing impairments who were better assessed in rooms with doors that closed. And so we were able to make these adjustments before the space opened to the public. I think those are all really awesome examples. And even some of the things we talked about before are ways that we can highlight improvements and, and scenarios where we may be able to create specific protocols for older patients in our EDs. So 
Alice highlighted that a lot of older people have sensory impairment or sensory deprivation, and a common one is hearing. So we can attempt, for example, to reduce the impact of hearing impairment or hearing loss on our older patients in the ED through the implementation of a simple protocol where patients, once identified as being hearing impaired, are offered a device such as a pocket talker, which can help them to hear better and allow for ED providers to communicate more effectively, efficiently, and clearly with our older patients. We can also look at modifying protocols to prioritize bed placement of elderly patients who are higher risk for having or developing delirium or for those who have mobility issues as highlighted before. And these sorts of protocols not only can improve patient experience, but it's also important to highlight that they can really improve and enhance provider experience and provider efficiency as well. I'm sold. So let's say we wanted to build a suit. How would we go about it? And of course, bottom line, budgets being what they are, how much would it cost to create something that we could use to have these experiences? Yeah, so the experiential learning, these suits can be done if you are lucky and work somewhere where you have a lot of funding. But like most of us, you probably have very little funding available at your institution. There are a few companies that make these elder suits and we will link these in the show notes. And while these suits are fantastic, they can be quite expensive and it really adds up if you need more than one suit at your institution. The actual individual pieces of the suit can be easily purchased online. And again, we will have a link to a list of equipment you would need. And the cost per suit is you know, less than $200 Canadian. So that's even less than US dollars and they are reusable. And I'll let Britt explain what she did in Saskatchewan. Thanks, yeah. So when I moved to Saskatchewan, uh, we didn't have anything like this. And I had previously experienced the elder suits while doing my fellowship in Toronto. And I kind of knew that this was a must in terms of engaging education. And I looked at the suits and kind of broke them down into what the components were, what they were actually doing, and came up with a way that we could do this ourselves. And I must say it was actually a lot of fun. Uh, First of all, it was a lot of fun because I went around our local donation centers and secondhand shops, and I was able to acquire a number of things to use in the suit, such as canes, joint immobilizers of various kinds, um, even old cervical like donut cushion things. You'd be amazed about what people donate. And in addition to these types of equipment, I spoke to our nursing teams who kept an eye out for me and were able to acquire some of the goods that had maybe gone off dates. So you'd be surprised, but even joint immobilizers have a finite lifespan and do expire. So we can get some great secondhand options or utilizing those that have been expired in our emergency departments. And then of course, I did purchase some items online as well. And so as mentioned before, you can use this as an educational activity that stands alone. You can do it in a simulation lab. You can also do it in situ. We initially built this into our learners simulation program as an hour activity. We have an afternoon of geriatric simulation cases, and this was kind of the final case that was fun and interactive. But again, as mentioned before, it's easy to add this into the physical space in the emergency department using interprofessional teams because different members, again, will see different solutions based on their point of view, their experiences and their job. And this is really an important part of the simulation. 
So, okay, we're going to link to how you can buy all these pieces or what you would need to make a build your own, build your own elder ex experiential learning suit. Once you've had people walk through these experiences of putting on the gown, getting in and out of the bed, walking down the hallway, down the ramp, over the bar that's in the way to the bathroom and back, then how do you structure your debrief? What kinds of things do you want them to reflect on or bring back from it? Yeah, this is a super duper important part of the experience. And in fact, probably the most important part. Our exercises, especially if you create those competitive environments can become so immersive. And even with seemingly simple equipment, participants get so focused on the task at hand that they may forget what the whole exercise was about. So having participants sit down and going through facilitated debrief is the most important thing. As with all debriefs, I usually start this type of thing with a, just a general question about how you, people are feeling, what their experience is like, what their emotions are like, and kind of let those come to the table. A lot of people will say that they felt frustrated, um, which is, I think, a really important part of this. We guide participants to reflect on the most challenging aspects of their experience. So it may be just putting the suits on and taking them off, or it may be understanding and performing the tasks. I often will ask people to think about their last frail patient that they were working with and how they may have performed similar tasks or what they asked them to do and how that might've been an experience that was challenging for them. And it can allow them to really reflect on their own practice, how they can modify it to help older people successfully navigate our healthcare environment. And so we touched earlier on higher level solutions, things that could be done in the department or the institution, such as modifications to the physical space, additional equipment to help older ED patients or new policies or protocols or changes related to their use. Changes can be broad, but simple, such as better signage, raised toilet seats, as I highlighted, walkers, or even gripped socks to those that are a bit more complex or involved, including adapting entire treatment spaces with lower level beds, having windows in rooms, improved lighting, noise reduction, and more. Let's think now even a little bit broader. So you were talking about things that we can learn from this simulation experience and the debrief. What about more broadly, Alice, I would love to hear your thoughts. Having done the simulation fellowship, how can we effectively debrief in general, whether that's after a simulation case, or let's say we had a difficult patient case or a difficult trauma or something that just didn't go well that we need to talk about. What are some good tips for debriefing in those situations? Yeah, I think debriefing is something that many people are intimidated of, but with a few tips and tricks, really anyone can run an effective debrief. And many of the points that Britt mentioned can be applicable to really any situation. I think just going back before we kind of start about the debrief is that we do need to mention about the pre-brief. So most good debriefs need to start with a great pre-brief. This is again for more of the simulation education environment as opposed to after a trauma case or a challenging case in the ED. But with the pre-brief, we did an introduction to the suits. What was the goal of the session? We need to always talk about psychological safety and basic assumptions that everyone involved is a smart, capable person and that they want to do the best for their patients. 
I think as emergency physicians, we also like to know how long we're going to be doing something so that we have an end goal in mind. So with all of my pre-briefs and then reiterating for the debrief, we want to say, you know, we will be spending five, 10 minutes here. And then recognizing if you are in the insight you environment, if you're in the emergency department, if you need to take care of patients, please go do that. That is the most important thing as well as having an out for people who don't wanna talk about things in the moment. So you can come email me, text me, talk to me at a later time if there's anything that you thought of that you didn't wanna bring up in this group environment. So having safety as a priority. We also need to recognize with the Jerry suits that learners or participants may come in with their own personal physical and or cognitive limitations. And we wanna be clear in the pre-brief what we're doing and why. And just to quickly reiterate some of the points that Britt mentioned for the debrief, it's really a great starting point just to assess people's reactions, how things went, what things went well, what things were challenging to them. Many of us in the simulation and debriefing world like to use the advocacy inquiry method of debriefing that uses questions and general curiosity to elicit learners' frames. And this is order, in order to understand what led to their actions, because we really never know what's going on in people's minds, their thought processes, but we can see their actions. And so using an objective term, you know, I noticed that you did this, what led to that will help to understand people's actions and their thought processes. And I think it's really important in general for this session and many sessions, not to focus on the negative, but to quickly move to a solutions oriented mind. So for these sessions, we really wanted to ask, you know, what could you do at a personal level or a higher level to improve on some of the challenges that you noticed? It is really helpful that for people to think about the last patient that they saw that was challenging because people will have many to choose from and to think about what are some real world solutions that they can think of in the space where they work versus in an ideal world, what solutions would they want? Again, we really like to keep things positive and solution oriented instead of just focusing on the negative and the challenging situations. Yeah, and just to really reiterate, I think there's so many things that come from these experiences. Often the participants' minds seem like they're racing at the end. Like there's so many things I want to do differently. There's so many things I want to do better. And so I think it can be really important to have each participant really come up with one solution, one thing that they can change in their practice. Of course, we want to change so much, but that can become so overwhelming that we don't change anything. So if we can really just focus on one thing each and learn from each other's experiences, I find that to be a really effective way of actually creating small changes and not just having an experience. Well, Brittany and Alice, thank you so much for sharing what you have done and what you've learned in this area. I love that this experiential learning not only builds understanding, but also builds empathy and also creates individuals who will advocate for personal change, for system change, and maintaining a solutions orientation. Check the show notes for equipment lists for how you can create a Jerry suit, and then also pictures of what Brittany and Alice have done. Thank you for listening to this episode of GemCast. You can connect with me on Twitter with the handle at GemPodcast. You can also navigate over to gedcollaborative.com for more resources on the care of older patients.